Atamari here, welcome to First Up, it is Ratu, that's Tuesday. The 11th of October, Ko Nathan Rarere Aho, coming up on the show today. More than 80 cruise missiles slam into targets across Ukraine. We'll be in the Chathams as hundreds of pilot whales beach themselves on Pitt Island. Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis talks local body elections and we speak to the Wellington Rescue Centre that's taken on an axolot of axolotls. And why was voter turnout so low for the local government elections? The date passed me without even realising it. I didn't actually know when it was on, I don't pay attention to it. I couldn't bring myself to choose one above the other because I didn't know, so I didn't bother voting. I may have voted if it was somewhere convenient, but I, I had no idea. Welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere and we begin this morning in Ukraine where more than 80 cruise missiles have hit civilian targets throughout the country. That's just days after an explosion damaged a key bridge connecting Russia with Crimea. Ukraine's government says that at least 11 people have been killed. Russian President Vladimir Putin says that those missile strikes are retaliation for that attack on the bridge. The BBC's Paul Adams has this report. After months of quiet in the capital, the war is back. For this girl, a narrow escape. For three hours this morning, the missiles kept coming. They landed in the heart of the capital, in the rush hour. Cars set alight, people killed as they went to work. Tourist locations too, the city's famous glass bridge taking a direct hit. This felt like a city being punished in its favourite, most iconic places. And then when Moscow decided it had done enough, it ended. The clean-up began. There are bodies lying on the street here in this elegant European capital. It's been almost four months since the last attack here. In three short hours, a growing sense of normality was shattered. This is the first time missiles have landed right here in the centre of Kiev. And these were not military targets, the children's playground through the trees, part of the University of Kiev over there. And this is a government department of science and education. Nearby, a huge crater where children come to play. Olena and Valeri live around the corner. Their children and grandchildren know this place well. Oh, it's Oh, it's horrible. This is our life. And just now, I don't know, an abyss has opened up in our lives. It's terrible. And it's happening everywhere. In the southern city of Zaporizhia, another hellish night. Vladimir Putin may have escalated today, but in Zaporizhia, this has been going on relentlessly for a week. And far to the west, in Lviv, more missiles, cutting off water and electricity. It's been a long time since so many cities were hit at the same time. Moscow apparently determined to make the biggest possible statement. Down in Kiev's metro, a population rallying in defiance. People lived down here for weeks when the war began. Two days ago, Ukraine was celebrating the destruction of Russia's bridge to the Crimea. Today, that euphoria is gone. Fear, once again, stalking the capital. 
That was the BBC's Paul Adams. It is nine past five here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Raddity, and we go to the UK now where the date of the budget's been brought forward, uh, brought forward, sorry, and uh, also Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has called once again for independence. So joining us on the line from England's north, I believe, is our correspondent, Ali J. Morena, Ali, how are you? Maria Nathan. Very good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Let's talk economy first. That's always a big place to go. So the Chancellor of the Exchequer there, Kwasi Kwarteng, has brought forward the date of the budget. Why has he done this? Yes, and I feel you're right. It is all weird. It's, there's lots of talk about this at the moment. Um, so he's now said that this is going to be brought forward by about a month and released at the end of this month, October. And originally it was going to be at the end of November. Um, they've also said that this one is going to be looked at by the OBR. That's the Office for Budget Responsibility. Um, and having a look, there's a lot of talk about the OBR as well. And they're basically an independent organisation that looks at public finances. They also give an analysis of um, tax, welfare, spending, and publish these forecasts for UK finances as well. So a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the mini budget, the fiscal event, uh, when the markets crashed, the pound nosedive, the Bank of England had to step in. That one was not scrutinised by the OBR. This one will be. So why has this been moved forward. Most likely, it's to try and calm the markets and offer some stability. Things are very much up and down at the moment. The government is still under a lot of pressure to explain how this economic plan will work and justify their policy. So the pound has bounced back a little, but it's still very fraught, very up and down. And the Chancellor, the Prime Minister Liz Truss, they're hoping that by bringing this forward, by getting the OBR in, involved, they can kind of shore up their plan and say this is going to work this is going you need to you can trust us on this and this is going to be good for the UK I mean it's also it's just before the Bank of England will release their latest interest rate decision as well that's on November the 3rd so moving it back before then they hope as well it'll mean that that interest rate might not be as high as it might have been there are a couple of sort of interesting little things that have happened today too so uh, they've appointed a new permanent secretary to the Treasury um, James Bowler and this seems like a, a minor thing, but lots of people are talking about it because um, pre getting into power, pre becoming PM, um, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng said they wanted to kind of shake up the whole treasury and they needed change all round. But this guy, he's been there 20 years and sort of to the outside might look like another job appointment. But people are saying that this was to say, give a sign to the markets, give a sign economically to say it's in safe hands. We're going to bring this this guy in we're going to keep some people the same who know what they're doing again it's that thing of being like you can trust us and I suppose people are reacting it seems at the moment like it's kind of damage control and trying to to carry on with things and show there's there's a solid plan it will be quite interesting though this week because parliament has been in recession for the past few weeks uh, and tomorrow so midday Wednesday here will be the first time uh, there'll be a prime minister's questions in the house of commons and I think we can probably expect that to be to be fairly lively this week oh look I'm sure everyone will just stop freaking out and they'll all just be very calm all of a sudden just seeing that the date's being brought forward that'll fix it it'll go well it's gone stunningly for those two so far I also see the attacks from north of the border verbally just I should say. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon not impressed at all with Liz Truss, but also tell us about this latest call for independence from Scotland's First Minister. 
Yes, so she said a couple of things. And so at the moment, this, um, as I said, Parliament in recession at the moment, and this is the two or three weeks of the year when we're in political party conference season. So they're gathering together lots of speeches of the various parties in various parts of the country as well. And today is the last day of the Scottish National Party um, conference. So Nicola Sturgeon, she's just given her closing speech. She's the leader of the SNP and the First Minister of Scotland. It's quite, I mean, a bit of uh, controversy as well because yesterday she was talking to Laura Coonsberg on the BBC and she was asked if she would do things differently to the current government to the Conservatives and she said I detest the Tories and everything they stand for so it's not difficult to answer that question. She's then had to go back and say she meant they detested their policies and values not the individuals in the party which I'm not sure if that actually does make it any better, really. Yeah. But now today in her speech, she said a few different things. She did dig into the government. She did dig into the Conservative Party. Uh, she said they've they've realised that the new Prime Minister was a mistake. She said Liz Truss had delivered chaos and catastrophe uh, and also that she's growing this gap between rich and poor. And as you say, she's called again for an independent Scotland. So she made the point that many smaller countries thrive with independence. And she was saying, for as long as I'm First Minister, I'll do everything in my power to build a better Scotland we all want to see, is what she said. Yeah. I mean, there were lots of cheers for this, but it is the Scottish National Party conference, so it is they, they run on this uh, mandate. And in the next couple of days, there'll be a decision by the High Court here to see whether or not Scotland are allowed to hold another referendum. Nicola Sturgeon says it'll be in, in 2023 they are going to do this, uh, and that the UK are kind of blocking this, this process as well. Well, I will look on with great interest. Thank you very much. There's Ellie J, who today was in the north of England. It's 14 and a half past five because I'm being very exact and you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. Always keen for your feedback there. Um, what do you think of the Scots? The, the Scots, should they become independent or is it something you go, oh, I'm sick of hearing about that. They do it all the time. Do you ever think it's going to happen? 2101, if you want to uh, jump in that way, uh, you can email us first up at rnz.co.nz about any of the issues going on in the world. Well, uh, at this time of the week, we always like to get the latest from our man in Japan. He is Chris Gilbert, and I started by warning him, hey, Chris, you got to look out because Tokyo just might start to get a little crowded there because the borders are reopening. Finally, you know, we've been talking about this for months, you know, it's like the borders are open, but only if you're a businessman and the borders are open, but you have to wait 16 months and the borders are open, but it depends what you're wearing. Now, the borders are open. You can come back to Japan from today, October 11th. It's Meiji 2.0. Cue the rigidly formed line of Japanese people at the department store bowing when you enter. It's all happening. You can come back as a tourist into the country. Could not be a better time for the Prime Minister Kishida. He is 35% in the approval polls at the moment, mostly because of the economy, which is in the gutter. Inflation is at 3%. And the Bank of Japan doesn't want to raise interest rates because everyone is waiting for this miraculous bounce back post-COVID. The rest of the world is meant to be having their economic revival at the moment after the pandemic. Japan is still waiting. And we're waiting for you to come here and give us all your money at yakitori restaurants. <laughs> it also means that people who live here in Japan are all flocking. We just had a long weekend here. The Shinkansen, the bullet trains, were packed with people trying to get one last trip into Kyoto before 
it is overrun with six foot seven Scandinavian men in hiking boots. Oh, before um, we all come and ruin it. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say ruin. I would say um, enrich and enhance. Thank you. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the Prime Minister is also trying to frantically figure out how to convince Japanese people how to take their masks off. This has been um, in the news twice this week uh, with the Prime Minister a, a little bit worried and commenters a little bit worried that when tourists come back, they're going to see everybody in Japan still wearing masks in the broad daylight and we're going to look a little bit weird and out of touch. So there's a frantic effort by the government at the moment to say, look, please take your mask off now. It's okay. Everybody has had COVID already. But just a quick note that if you are going to come to Japan and you are going to wear masks, we can spot tourists a million miles away because tourists wear blue masks that they bought in Australasia and North America and brought over with them. Nobody in Japan wears a blue surgical mask. So if you want to look like a tourist, please wear a blue mask. Yeah, If you don't want to look like a tourist, just pop into the Combini, pop into the 7-Eleven, pick up a pack of uh, nice whiteies, and, and you'll look like a local. Okay, so you get the white ones. Mind you, I was always impressed with that. I mean, when I got to go to Tokyo, I realised that people, if they thought they had a cold, would wear a mask. And I thought that was a pretty cool thing uh, that they were doing anyway. But, okay, now it's... Don't do that. It looks bad for the tourists. Take it off. Take it off. All right. Hey, um, now there's some action going on there just across the sea there. North Korea. Can you tell me about the missile that they fired over Japan last week? Oh, mate, it has been a time over here. So about a week ago, North Korea was like, hey, look at us. And they fired a missile over Japan and into the Pacific Ocean. Of course, North Korea is, is consistently firing and testing missiles, right? But it's been five years since the last time it actually fired one like over the country and this particular one was the longest missile that they've ever fired which caused a big kerfuffle in the news south korea fired some missiles of their own and then north korea fired some missiles again and then south korea and the united states fired some missiles again but one time Actually, one of the South Korean missiles malfunctioned and uh, instead of flying into the Sea of Japan, actually uh, landed in their own base. Luckily, yeah, I know. Luckily, the um, the warhead wasn't triggered. It didn't go off. But uh, the Japanese article I was reading about this was translated into English. And it, re- <laughs> it read like, uh, uh, South Korean missile malfunctions, lands 700 meters from house and causes a big fuss. And I was like, <laughs> I, was like I just love that. Um, on a more serious note, North Korea uh, is concerned about like the swarm of countries around it that seem to be forming an alliance, such as South Korea, Japan, and the USA. Uh, South North Korea is concerned about the so-called Asian NATO. And also we've got the Canadian foreign minister visiting Japan this week. Japan and Malaysia have been talking about North Korea uh, just over the weekend as well. And so it's putting a bit of pressure on, on North Korea and it may, possibly might be feeling more isolated. However, I spoke to like a guy, a defense expert in Tokyo last week, and he was like, you know, there's a lot of fireworks in the, in the news, right? But nobody actually wants to go to war. The United States doesn't want to attack North Korea as long as North Korea doesn't attack anybody else. Mm. And North Korea doesn't want to attack anybody else because then that would be the end of North Korea. So really, the USA and Japan, is it's fine with them firing off these missiles as long as no one gets hurt. But for the time being, these missiles are still being launched and Japan is still condemning them. That's Chris Gilbert in Tokyo. It's 20 past five, I'm Nathan Radade and you're listening to First Up here at RNZ National. So coming up, we're going to be in the Chatham Islands very soon, covering that oh, the stranding of those hundreds of pilot whales over there. And also local democracy reporter Susan Botting gives us the news from right up north. 
Local democracy reporting time now. This morning we are in Northland with Susan Botting, who's been all over the local election results. Well, they've all got major leadership change. And across the whole range of the four councils, one council's got up to 70% new people. And that's Kaipara District Council. And then you've got both Whangarei District Council and Northland Regional Council with more than 40% leadership change. And you've got the Far North District Council with about 28% leadership change. So that's quite a big number, especially for uh, Kaipara. Did a lot of councillors get voted out or did they just not re-stand? Because that's a huge amount of change. It's a mixture, really. And um, I've done stories before about what what I call the tsunami of leadership change Hmm. because we've got... All the four council leaders now not with us in terms of experience. And we have a new mayor in Auckland as well, who at the helm of a large city. So it's a lot of change. And there was a real mixture. Some people chose to go. Some people reached the end of their time. Some people said, I've had enough of all these local government changes that are heading our way. It was a real mixture. Right. Now, three mayors, three new mayors in there. Tell us about them. So in Kaipara, we have newcomer to the council scene, uh, Craig Jepson, mm. and he's anti-co-governance and he doesn't believe in climate change and he wants to reduce council staff numbers. And he was also behind a major local push against Maori wards when they were introduced, collecting signatures on Kaipara against their introduction and presenting them to a council meeting. Mm. In Whangarei, we've got self-proclaimed centre-right councillor Vince Cocorello. He's finally realised his... 33-year-old dream to become mayor of Whangarei. And he said to me yesterday, my mates from school rang me on Saturday night and said, do you realise when you were 15 in the school ground at Pompalia College, you said, I want to be mayor of Whangarei one day. And of course, when you're 15, you forget about these things over time. (laughs) And then, of course, it gets resurrected. So this was his fourth attempt to become mayor of Whangarei. And he finally got there, much like Sir Peter Blake. You know, he tried many times to sail around the world before he won. Yes. And... In the far north, I can't tell you definitively, but at the moment, it's Mokotapania. I would say it's one of New Zealand's teetering mayoralties. On Saturday, the far north district council provisional results from Saturday election results said that the deputy mayor of the council was the new mayor. Mm -hmm. But she took that with a grain of salt because she knew it was fairly close. And you've got late votes, special votes, and the whole nine yards. So by the 9th of October, with preliminary results, Mokotapania has now stepped into the ring. And so there's a bit of a knife edge going on in the far north. And when the confirmation of election results come through between the 13th and 19th of October, I'm sure there'll be some happy people. Now, the the, the far north uh, mayoralty, that is Wayne Brown, who's the new mayor of Auckland. Is that correct? That's that's who they're replacing there in, in the mayoralty? Uh, no, in the far north, uh, Wayne Brown was once the mayor of the far north. Oh, right. OK. And uh, at the moment, the person who's just stepped down is John Carter. Yes. Former MP, lots of portfolios in central government, Minister of Civil Defence. Uh, he was also the High Commissioner to Rarotonga, and he's met the Queen several times. And he was the person that had the longest, continuous current service and employment in local government in New Zealand for 50 years. Wow. Plus. So he's quite a great, you know, he's got a feature of New Zealand government locally and centrally. And so he's stepped down because he's 72 now and he felt, felt he'd like to do other things. 
So in the far north, we have, I guess, two quite different sorts of options. We have Anne Court, who is not afraid to rattle the cages in Wellington when they need to be rattled, and Northland can often get forgotten, mm. and is a very hard worker, and she's been in local government for a long time. And then we have Moku, who's standing in a Maori ward, and he is a young leader to watch. He's an amazing young guy. He was the first councillor in New Zealand to present an agenda item to council in Maori. And a Maori language where a couple of years ago he spent the whole day in the council meeting conducting his interaction in Maori. And he brought along a senior student from the kura that he teaches at to translate into English for the meeting. So he's involved in local government sector organisations as well. And so they're completely different products. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. That's our local democracy reporter in Northland, Susan Botting. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. 11th of October, goodness me. Today is a, a day for birthdays. Jane Krakowski, you know who? Jenna Maroney from um, 30 Rock, you know Jenna? Yeah, she was fun. Uh, Jenna Krakowski is 54 years old today. Joan Kuzak is 60 and Dawn French was born in Hollyhead in Wales 65 years ago today. It was a big day for releases as well. 1971, John Lennon's Imagine released as a single. That one went okay, didn't it? Uh, in 1975, Saturday Night Live started. Lorne Michaels had this idea for a sketch show. He got the comedian George Carlin to be the first host. It appeared on NBC and it just went massive and it, it is still going. Nowadays it's probably more famous for its YouTube clips, but uh, yeah, Saturday Night Live. The uh, magnificent film in 1997 that they made for $15 million and it made $54 million. Boogie Nights premiered in theatres. And on this day, a, a happy birthday to Henry John Hines. He was born in 1844, the American entrepreneur who at the age of 25 went, try this, and people went, oh, what is that? He went, it's my mum's horseradish recipe. And they went, no. Uh, so he started another business, and he went, well, there's this one here, it's a tomato ketchup. That went okay. That went okay. Heinz Ketchup now sells 650 million bottles annually worldwide. And that is the goings-on of this day that we call October the 11th. It's business. It's business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. Joining us now from the business team is Mr. Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles. More to you, Nathan. Now, uh, working from home uh, obviously came into our lives a lot in the last few years. Um, and I believe it's quite good uh, for avoiding one of the things um, uh, that people say is a negative there, Giles, workplace bullying. Workplace bullying. In fact, there are a lot of reasons why people still want to work from home. Workplace bullying or avoiding workplace bullying is one of them. Uh, a survey had been done by uh, a, a payroll and human resources company uh, and it shows more than half of uh, workers from marginalised groups uh, agree that remote work protects them from discrimination in the workplace. Uh, and one of the other findings of the survey was that uh, more and more people 
like the prospect of staying uh, at home or working there largely because it was helping them to cope with the rising cost of living. They didn't have public transport. They weren't actually necessarily rushing out to get uh, expensive lunches in town and the like. So it was good for them. So suggestion is that uh, businesses have to be mindful of this, that uh, you know the talk, uh, as we've seen in a lot of overseas companies, that everybody back into the office uh, won't necessarily work, isn't necessarily a good thing. And in fact, there's a good chance that uh, in the current labor market, you may lose valuable people who will just go to another employer mm. who will allow them to work from home for those uh, very reasons. So... Um, we're starting to see some real insights into the way you know work happens, work attitudes. I think worker attitudes, employer attitudes. Uh, it may whether it becomes permanent. I don't know. I mean, you know, it will be a university study in twenty years' time as they look back on this. But uh, for the time being, you'd have to say that. Uh, companies need to be mindful of the well-being of their employees uh, and that might well be allowing them to work from home even if there is some cost to your business uh, in terms of productivity. What do you reckon, Charles? Do you reckon a a survey comes out in a couple of months from the commercial property people going, no, it's uh, it's great for camaraderie? That'll come out, surely. Uh, I think we've already had a couple of those but we can can guarantee... (laughs) We can guarantee that there will be a couple more. We get quite regular um, surveys of, for instance, what types of commercial property are selling, whether it's A-grade in the middle of town, whether it's fringe property. So the next one that comes out, I'll make sure we get all the details and we'll pass it on to you. All right, thank you. I know that my friend's uh, workplace bullying that happens at home is the cat. Uh, won't move off the keyboard sometimes, um, so he has to just pause for about 10 minutes or so. But he goes and makes a coffee. That is Giles Beckford. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at 10.27. If you're taking your New Zealand dollar shopping, this is what it fetches. 56 US cents, 88.39 Australian cents, 57.29 Euro cents, 50.26 British pence, 3.97 yuan and 80.89 Japanese yen. Well, some Wellingtonians are finding out the hard way that when you put a male and female axolotl in close proximity, you can end up with a whole lot of axolotls. So many axolotls, in fact, that people are turning to animal charities to look after these unusual amphibians. I talked with Danny Mokomoko from Wellington Amphibian and Reptile Rescue, and he explained why he's seeing so many of them. Well, actually, the amount we have is quite small compared to the eggs that they can have. We've got so many because um, a lady that they hand, she handed them over to us who um, had rescued them herself. Us being a reptile and amphibian rescue, we took them on and we just put it up on Facebook. We've got this many and now I'm talking to you. It seems we've gone a bit viral. <laughs> so how, how many have you got? Well, we've only got probably we've got about 15 left, but when Axel's lay eggs, they can lay a thousand at a time. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so you've actually done quite well to get rid of these. So, I mean, axolotls, I mean, they're, they're things that I see in books, you know, when they're doing those alphabet books and they're going, no, let's not do apple, let's go with axolotl when they start. How difficult are they to look after? Yeah, they are quite difficult, to be honest. There is a lot involved in regards to the water quality, the food, and a lot of costs involved as well, which people don't realise. Yeah. So tell me, man, what do they eat? Well, they eat worms, pellets, I say worms, worms from my garden, as well as blood worms, and they can eat a variety of other 
different substances, but they do not eat mint and chicken, which some people tend to believe they can eat. Oh, right. Okay. What, what are the unusual things about an axolotl as an animal? Well, they are endangered in their natural habitat, but there's plenty of them in captivity. Also, they do regrow their legs and arms and other body parts if they are bitten off due to having a mate in their their tank or some other happens. It's amazing. So they're going to eat each other there as well. How long do they live for? Well, they can live 10 to 15 years if they're looked after well. But they can also, that's in captivity. But there are records that they've lived till 25 easily. So, you know, we, we often hear of species that come in, you know, I've heard chinchillas and things like that over the years. Axolotls, why are they the hot thing at the moment? I think the reason they're the hot thing at the moment is Minecraft. Uh, there's, they've recently been introduced to the uh, game and kids love them. And I think parents may see them as an easy pet, but... In, Realistically, they're not. Right. I'm just wondering, too, you know, like, because they're not a native species to New Zealand, there's always that thing you hear around the world, like people releasing snakes in Africa or whatever, or in Florida or what have you, and even carp into the rivers here. Axolotls, is it, if, if any of them get out, is that dangerous in our ecosystem? Well, I would say yes, it can be. I've heard of any um, colony that's established itself locally or in the wild. They can live in ponds. It's not recommended because their habitat they require. The temperature is quite a small band, sort of like 14 to 18 degrees. But whilst they possibly could live in the wild, I don't think they would establish a colony. Right, it's going to be a little... I mean, you can grow a leg back, but you can't cope with it being a little uh, colder there. That's a normal exactly. thing, I guess. Yeah. So, so you've got 15 axolotls left. Uh, if people are going, OK, I would like to get involved with this. First off, what do I put them in, and how do I get hold of you? Well, you want to put them... Uh, well, obviously, they've got to go in a, in a sort of hex-sized tank. When we do rehome them, we make sure that everyone has the right information there's a correct setup. If you do want to get hold of us, you can search us on Facebook, Wellington Amphibian Reptile Rescue, or alternatively, give us a ring on 0275 That was Danny Mokomoko from Wellington Amphibian and Reptile Rescue. The time is uh, 21 to 6, we'll call it. More than 250 stranded whales have died on the Chatham Islands. Whale Rescue Organisation Project Jonah's General Manager, Darren Grover, is with us now. Um, Darren, thank you very much uh, for being here. I wonder if you can just explain this. So some pass away naturally, others have to be euthanised. How many, and how is the decision made of which ones you're going to have to euthanise? Maria Nathan, um, this stranding that's been reported on Pitt Island is actually the second in the last several days that's occurred over on the Chathams. Um, the first involved around about 215 animals, and this second one is approximately 250. Um, Pilo they live in these large uh, social groups, these pods, um, and obviously travel the ocean and live together uh, in, in these 
in these groups. Um, sadly, I mean, pilot whales are known for stranding on mass. Um, we, you know, we, we had one in March, uh, farewell spit here uh, in New, mainland New Zealand. And again, we had one of uh, over 600 in, individuals in 2017. Um, the reasons they strand are, are, are wide and varied, and I'm happy to unpick some of those if you mm-hmm. like. Um, yes. with, regard, with regard to them dying, I mean, the stress of stranding is huge. The stress of being immobile uh, for the first time ever in their, in their lives um, in the ocean, they are constantly moving. Even even when they take these these small sleeps that they have, uh, they're still moving in the ocean. So, being immobile is highly stressful for them. Um, and then, the, the whether whether they are ill, some of them may be ill. Um, you know, illnesses, some illnesses similar to some illnesses that, that we see in, in cat or in other humans and other mammals. Um, that can happen well. So individuals will die um, and then others will possibly suffer for days on the beach. Um, any decision to euthanize is um, almost always driven from a, uh, an animal welfare mm-hmm. perspective. So it's, it's to end suffering. It's very sad. Um, it's, it's it's so sad, Darren, to hear about this. What is it common um, for whales to strand in the Chathams, or is this a sort of regular time of year where you find that these sorts of whales strand places? It is. Uh, it is. Un- it's not uncommon for them to strand at the Chatham Islands. The Chatham Islands have got quite a, an amazing ecology there. Um, the Chatham Islands sits surrounded by some 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 quite deep water there, several hundred meters deep. Um, and then you've kind of got the the subtropical water ends not far above uh, the Chathams, and then the uh, subantarctic waters, and they kind of meet there. And you just get this mixing of the two the two water bodies, um, and that creates a um, a great mix of um, of our, the, the flora and fauna in the ocean and the whole food chain is active in that area. And so that attracts all animals in the ocean. I mean, the fishing is great there. Um, and, and so uh, you know, with great fish come then great predators and that includes our whales and that includes our sharks. And so that, that, that the, the animals will congregate in that area and um, it only takes where, you know, it could possibly be a prevailing weather front that brings them closer to shore and some of these gentle sanding beaches that they then come up on and they can easily get caught out by an outgoing tide uh, and end up stranded on the beach. And then obviously that's, that's, that's the trigger for a stranding. Um, once, once they're on the beach, then obviously these stress responses kick in, and then, the, but then that is the time where, on mainland New Zealand, we are able to to step in and assess, and then um, hopefully assist returning some to the ocean. Yeah, that's harder there, Darren. Thank you so much for your time this morning and uh, informing us all on that. It's very sad. I don't know, it was it was sad, isn't it? Um, Two hundred and fifty uh, more whales stranded there and died uh, out on the Chatham Islands. Um, but that was Project Jonah's general manager, Darren Grover. We head towards six. I'm Nathan Rarere, and you're listening to First Up here at RNZ National. So between now and uh, six o'clock, we're going to you know, keep it fairly local body elections. First off, low turnout, so we send out our man onto the streets to find out how come. And uh, also, Nationals 2 I see Nicola Willis is with us on the show. Aucklanders are calling for an overhaul of the local body election voting process after a record low turnout over the weekend. Just 36% of eligible Kiwis cast their vote, which is down from 42% in the last election. So our reporter Leonard Powell went to ask the people if they voted, and if not, why not? Auckland has 1.2 million eligible voters this year, but in some parts of the super city, less than 20% put pen to paper. 
I didn't actually know when it was on. I don't pay attention to it, really. I think people need to change because the process is so easy. It got posted to me. I dropped it off at the library. I completed forms of the library when I went to the library. It was so easy. People are apathetic. On the main street of Panmuir, this man told me he didn't vote because of a lack of awareness around the process. Well, one reason partly was that I had no idea where it was being held. The, the information wasn't there in front of me, whereas I may have voted if, I, if it was somewhere convenient, but I, I had no idea. He says the day got away from him, but he admits it shouldn't have been the case. The date passed me without even realising it. If you compare it to, you know, national elections where we we know where we're going and we're encouraged to vote in the various locations. Others say they didn't get the paperwork to start with. Uh, Some of them, because some of them moved to a new address, so they didn't get their um, voting papers. I think the process for them was a bit too hard. Um, Maybe for some of them if it was online it would be a bit easier. You think it should move that way? Maybe like split it, because maybe, maybe not completely move it to online, but split it like online and postal, so there's options for everyone. I've not, I've not got the letter. Like, you know, usually you get a letter or invitation that you have been eligible for voting or not. So I've not got it, or I don't know. The head of local government New Zealand is calling for an independent review. In Auckland's Manukau ward, where losing mayoral candidate Efeso Collins was a ward councillor, just 21% of people voted. In Otara, less than 5,000 people cast their votes less than 20% of the suburb's population. This voter thinks it's time voting went online. Well, yes, I think so, because more and more people are going online, aren't they? Auckland's new mayor, Wayne Brown, won just over 180,000 votes on Saturday, over 50,000 more than Official Collins. This man says he didn't have enough information. More direct knowledge coming to me about the candidates was really a choice of not... Not that I didn't want to vote, but more that I had no idea what they individually stood for and there was plenty of billboards around, but I couldn't see what their individual stance on, you know, local uh, bits of, you know, important information. So, yeah, I couldn't bring myself to choose one above the other because I didn't know, so I didn't bother voting. Local Government New Zealand says an independent review would look at improving communication and delivering consistency across the country, as often voter turnout was lower in big cities. Meanwhile, this Pam Ewer local has a message for those who didn't vote. Easy. I've missed it in the past because I didn't really understand the process, but it came into my mailbox and I just filled it out and dropped it off. And I told everyone else to go and vote and use their vote whilst they complain. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, also, we discussed some of the issues raised in Leonard's story with National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis, but I began by asking if she was encouraged by the number of right-of-centre candidates who prevailed in the elections. It was certainly a change election. You saw lots of communities clearly expressing displeasure with the status quo, wanting things to head in a different direction, and they voted for agents of that change. So what we see is that that is how a lot of New Zealanders are feeling right now. They think the country's going in the wrong direction, and we find that they are listening to what we have to say and are increasingly looking to National for solutions to the country's challenges. So that's encouraging. 
Yeah. Um, what about uh, there's a few of the mayors, though, I thought was quite interesting. So I spoke to Nick Smith yesterday and also to, and I know I heard from the mayor of Christchurch as well. Many of them saying, look, we don't want anything to do with three waters, but we would like some money. And we think we've our voters have put in plenty during the tax take over the years to help with local infrastructure projects. How would you handle that kind of thing when I thought that, you know, the three waters was really to help with those sorts of watery, you know, infrastructure projects? How would you handle that differently? Well, we oppose three waters. We think that taking local assets and putting them into four mega entities is a recipe for trouble. It will not allow for local accountability. It will create huge amounts of bureaucracy and has a governance structure we disagree with. We do agree that many communities want to do better on water infrastructure. So we support the idea of a water regulator that sets standards and then requires local governments to deliver their water infrastructure to those standards. Uh, And we envisage that in the future there will be more collaboration between councils willingly to deliver those assets. And we're open to new ways of working between local government and central government to make sure our communities have the infrastructure they need. So ultimately, would it mean they'd have to put their rates up really locally, wouldn't it, to pay for their local things then? Well, not necessarily. There are a range of ways in which these projects could be financed. But I think the thing that's never spoken about with the Three Waters reform that's on the table is the basis of the government's model is for entities which are not accountable to the public, but which would have the ability to charge water rates at potentially very high levels. So the truth is with any new infrastructure, people will have to pay for it. The question is how we best do that and how we make sure that communities still have a say in how those assets are run and whether they're happy with the decisions being made. Yeah, as long as they're delivering it well, though, because there's a lot of water around New Zealand that isn't delivered well. But let's move to other things. I spoke to Tori Farno yesterday morning, and, of course, she's the new mayor of Wellington. And we were talking about voter turnout, and she sort of said, you know, it is disappointing that nationwide the voter turnout was low. She thought, you know, wouldn't it be good if we actually had a, a proper polling day for... I guess, local elections, you know, to try and get the numbers back up. How? What was your take on the numbers and would you like to see something like that come in? Oh, look, I am disappointed when there's low turnout because I think democracy is a very precious thing and I always want to see people exercising their right to vote. Um, I think there's two things there. One, we as politicians always need to be accountable for inspiring people enough and motivating them enough that they do want to turn out and vote. The second thing is that clearly turnout has been on decline at local government level to an extent that is worrying. There was clearly muck-ups this year with some of the ballots not arriving in the mail. So I think we do need to look at what went wrong, why it went wrong, and fix it for future years and be open to new ideas such as Tories. Uh, We need to work that all through, but certainly I'm open to new ideas. And I know for many people, in-person voting has a real appeal. Yeah. The new Mayor of Auckland is Wayne Brown. Have you or Christopher Luxon had a chance to to speak with, with him yet? Look, I haven't spoken with him yet. I imagine that Chris Luxon probably has uh, on several occasions. But look, I, I look forward to being able to work with him as a new mayor. National's view is that Auckland remains New Zealand's biggest city. When it's going well, the country's going well. So we want it to be a productive city that's investing in the infrastructure needed for growth and that serves Auckland as well. Uh, And I'm sure that Wayne 
shares that goal. Well, his his billboards were all him with his arms folded, you know, like like the men at halftime in the rugby ads outside the Mitre 10. So he's going to get <laughs> things done, sort of face there as well. But I'm just wondering. Well, I think getting things done is a popular music <laughs> it around is, isn't it? right f- now. There's a fix. lot of frustration. A lot of people say to me, why is it always road cones and no delivery? And I get it. I, I, I get that frustration. That, it seems like he's not the biggest fan of central government, though. So do you think, though, that his style, it should be more confrontational? Do you think that will pay off in getting Auckland what it needs instead of Phil Goff's quiet diplomacy? Well, look, that's yet to be seen. But I do have sympathy for the view that says sometimes what a community wants for itself will be different from what Wellington wants from it. And I can understand in Auckland uh, the pent-up frustration that they do feel. You know, they did endure a much longer lockdown than many other parts of the country. They are a city uh, that has been growing very fast and whose infrastructure needs have not always been met. Uh, And I can understand that they see the Wellington bureaucracy as slowing them down sometimes. So National's a big believer in uh, community voice and decisions and services being made close to communities. So we have sympathy for that. Um, The question for Wayne will be how he ensures he delivers, because as I said, I think that's what people really want to see right now. They want to see results, they want to see action, they want to see achievement, not more working groups and bureaucracy. Yeah. Hey, let's move to something. This is an interesting one too, because you spoke about uh, earlier on before about MPs or politicians maybe being more noticeable or something. I, I wonder what you make of ACT. ACT yesterday released a document laying out an opposition to co-governance so trying to go with that but it includes in it a a passing of legislation that would see the the English version of the Treaty of Waitangi which was largely discredited set into law would you go along with this? Well that's not our policy it is something that ACT have previously publicly said is their policy our view is clear that we don't believe in co-governance of public services and separate systems for Māori and non-Māori. We think the focus should be on how we deliver better results for Māori and for other New Zealanders. So look, that's ACT's policy. As their own political party, they're free to design and promote their own policies. Right, so I mean, if it's an ACT bottom line and, and you need them to form a government, you'd, you'd still say no to them? Mind you, they can't really go anywhere else, can they? Well, it's far too early to be talking about bottom lines and negotiation. Our focus now is trying to win support for National's policy platform. And as I say, it doesn't include a referendum on those matters. OK, let's let's get to uh, some of those. Treasury's audit of the government books has found that the country's finances are in better shape than, than had been expected. Do you still think it's time for that tax cut on the top rate? Because Grant Robertson says that'll be irresponsible. Well, we continue to believe that tax reduction is affordable if the government brings more discipline to its own spending, stops poorly prioritised projects and cuts out waste. The other thing those books showed when they were released last week was that the country is now spending a billion dollars more each week when compared to nationals last year in office. And when I talk to New Zealanders, a lot of them say to me, look, I'm not seeing the results of that spending. There's a real frustration that so much money is going into the bureaucracy and into government, and yet so few results are coming out the other side. So we think that with prudent financial management, we will be able to invest appropriately in public services while making room for prudent tax adjustments. Mm. Uh, National Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. Finally this morning, some of your feedback. I spoke this morning about Scottish independence. Here we go. Tractor Man in Waipukuro says Scotland's the same size as Otago and Southland. Yeah, I think 
Singapore is only slightly bigger than Lake Taupo, but yes, okay. Uh, here's another one. Uh, we called for Scottish independence when we were on our OE there in 1989. Thatcher introduced the poll tax one year before England to test Scots' compliance to its extraordinary economic policy. I've just returned from the UK, says Yvonne. I flew from Bristol to Edinburgh. They treated it like an over-the-border flight. Any liquid over 100 mils was confiscated. Swiss Army knife, same. Toothpaste, same. Maybe someone needs to tell the English. It's still one country. That's Yvonne Boyd there in Nelson. Uh, euthanized Nithin not euthanized thank you uh, Morning Report is next with Kim Hill and Guyon Espinar uh, from all of us here at First Up have yourselves a wonderful day I'm Nathan Rarity I'll be back in your ears ah, purple. Purple.